Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. Dr. Christopher Dwyer is a postdoctoral researcher in the School of Health Sciences and lecturer in the Center for Adult Learning and Professional Development at the National University of Ireland, Galway. He is also the author of Critical Thinking, Conceptual Perspectives and Practical Guidelines, published by Cambridge University Press, and writes a blog for Psychology Today called Thoughts on Thinking, which covers the topic areas of critical thinking. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Aaron. I'm really excited to have you here, and I'm, I appreciate the fact that we are recording and you are in Ireland, so this is sort of <laughs> at the end of your day. I know you've got family stuff, so thanks so much for meeting me late. No problem, no problem. Happy to be here doing it with you, yep. And this topic is really important. I'm a clinical psychologist, as you know, and we do a lot of work with patients having to do with irrational thoughts, reframing, a lot of stuff having to do with cognitive distortions and cognitive reframing. And you do some really amazing work and research on this area of critical thinking, which I think is really pertinent to the work that we do in clinical psychology. So I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation that we're having about this. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to it. So first off, let's tell me a little bit about yourself and your professional career and your interests in this field? Yeah, um, I've been thinking about it not too long ago. How did I get here kind of thing, this life journey kind of thing. You know, I'm 36 years old and I say to myself, and I think it's good to kind of reflect every now and then, where am I in life? And this kind of question came up to me, you know, in this kind of reflection. I said, where did I get into this? And I think the one thing that I kind of spotted when I was younger, I think, was that I was always kind of a film buff and I always loved movies and I think I kind of got into it that way because the reason why I love them is because of, you know, the underlying messages. And sometimes there's deeper films than we give them credit for. And and sometimes there's, you know, films that are, you know, kind of so in your face that, you know, you're amazed to hear that there is some kind of subtle message underneath. So I kind of got into art house films really when I was younger and started looking for things and thinking deeper. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily critical thinking, but the kind of skills that underlie critical thinking are, are very similar in terms of analysis and evaluation and, and inference. So I think that was kind of what got me into it. And then when I moved moved into, you know, third level education and I was doing my, my psychology undergrad, I'll always remember that my two favorite topic areas were cognitive psychology and then social psychology. So not just necessarily how, how the brain works and how we think of it in terms of, you know, working memory and long-term memory and, and all that, um, but problem solving and then higher order cognitive functioning and then how we move into, you know, a social realm that we move outside of ourselves and how do we apply this thinking in between myself, you know, the individual and the environment and indeed other people out there and how do we engage, how do we have dialogue with others and what are our motivations and why, why do people act the way they do? And, you know, I guess these are kind of the fundaments of psychology, but, you know, the way I always kind of gravitated towards was the decision-making aspect of things and, you know, how we think and the process of thinking and, and kind of going about it that way. And then I got, you know, involved in thinking about, you know, well, how, how can we make that better? How can we become more efficient? How can we make better decisions? I think that's really kind of where it kind of came from. 
So let's talk a little bit about critical thinking. How do you define that? And what exactly is critical thinking? So I'll give you the long, accurate definition. Sure. And I'll give you a shorter, more palatable definition, but they're both important for very distinct reasons. And I'll tell you why. So the long version of it is that it's a purposeful, self-regulatory, reflective judgment consisting of a number of skills and dispositions that increase the chances of developing a solution to a problem or a conclusion to an argument. And if that sounds like it's been scripted, it has. I'm not reading it off anything. It's just that I've written that line so many times over the past 15 years that, you know, it's become verbatim to me kind of thing. Yeah, it sounds pretty academic. Yeah. And so when I'm chatting to people, friends who aren't in psychology or academia and, and they're talking, they're like, you know, what do you do? And I tell them about critical thinking and they say, what is that? And so I don't belabor this long-winded idea with them. I just tell them the simplest way I know how to tell someone. And I said, you know what? It's kind of like playing devil's advocate. Mm. And then they go, oh, okay. I said, but you have to be really, really pedantic with it. <laughs> yeah. And they go, okay, okay. Because, you know, you'll have conversations and, and people will kind of get in there and say, oh, well, that's a lot like critical thinking, isn't it? I'm like, no, it's really not. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of tell them, you know, what it is and what it isn't. A lot of people will say, you know, oh, is creative thinking critical thinking? I go, no, actually, they're very distinct, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of what, it, what it's not <laughs> as mm-hmm. opposed to what it is in ways. But if we take a look at that longer definition, I guess, you know, there, there's three key kind of focuses there, which I guess simplify it, right? There are skills, there's critical thinking skills. And I I mentioned them earlier, they're analysis, evaluation, and inference. And these are skills that we might've picked up in grade school. We might've picked them up in high school and some people pick them up in college and that's, and that's fine too. You know, these are skills that anyone can learn, but at the end of the day, we can't say that once we've acquired these skills that we can think critically, because there's a little bit more to it. And so I talked about disposition. So there's this idea of critical thinking disposition and a disposition. What we mean by it here is a tendency or an inclination. It's a tendency based on value. So the idea is that you have to value certain tendencies, I guess, for critical thinking to actually happen. So you could have all the skills in the world that will help you to think critically, but if you're not motivated Mm. or inclined to do so, you're just not, you're not going to do it. So one can have the ability to think critically, but just not do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Flip it the other way. You might have someone who values critical thinking, you know, more than anything, but they're just actually not able to do it or they're not right. just very not good at applying the skill. And so <laughs> you have these skills and you have these dispositions and, you know, you, you hope that they marry well together and, and that you can apply it. But then it, it takes into account this other thing. We've got this kind of umbrella over the two of them, what we call reflective judgment. And uh, reflective judgment is this ability to make decisions, but at the same time, acknowledging the nature of knowing things, acknowledging the nature of information. So it's very epistemological in that sense. So just knowing that anything that we may hold as quote unquote fact may be falsified later down the line, knowing that, you know, we can never be a hundred percent certain about anything, knowing that with that, you can't be certain. You know, mm-hmm. if, if someone tests you, you can't say, well, I know for a fact. No, you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and being able to acknowledge that is one of the greatest tools for moving ahead and, and progressing in critical thinking. So that's, like I said, it's this governing 
kind of concept around it that mm-hmm. we can't be certain all the time. So there's a certain amount of cognitive flexibility that's necessary for critical thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember um, going in when I first started teaching at third level, and I, I wasn't much older than some of the students that I was teaching. It is intimidating, but you know, it's one of those things, if you go in prepared, you should be okay. And then I had a friend of mine says, what happens if you don't know, you know? And I said, Ooh. <laughs> I said, I, I suppose I'm going to have to tell them I don't know. Uh-huh. You know, that was one way of thinking about it. And then another way of thinking was I could say, um, you know what? That's a great question. Here's your homework for tonight. Find out the answer, you know, right. and you make a joke out of it. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've realized that first answer was 100% the right answer. Mm-hmm. I don't know is a very, very acceptable answer. Why would you try and make something up on the spot if, if you didn't know? Mm-hmm. Part of the Socratic method really is, you know, all I know is that I don't know and keep asking the person why and, you know, let them show you what they're thinking. And then eventually sure. you'll, you'll show them that they're as uncertain as you are, you know? Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to critical thinking, I know that most of us have some level of skill and motivation and ability to do this to some degree or another, but we probably pick and choose when and where we do that in our day-to-day life. Because I think you mentioned this in one of your blog posts that I read, that it takes a, it takes a mental energy to do it. And sometimes we may not have the energy or the motivation to want to do it as much as other times. So I'm just wondering... And your thoughts about critical thinking and what context is it more important to do critical thinking? Do people find themselves struggling with this in a more important way and other times where maybe it's not so important? Like, how do you put that into perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. I generally recommend that one should only critically think about things that they care about, because if you don't care about it, why you're wasting your time. Critical yeah. thinking takes, it takes a bit of time. I'm not saying it, it sh- should take you three days worth of, you know, sitting in a dark room, you know, pondering the meaning of life, but it's not something that's going to come to you in 20 seconds either. So if the decision isn't important to you, why bother? I like to um, draw a reference to a uh, rather famous um, coffee shop worldwide. I, I won't mention the brand, <laughs> but I think we, we can all figure it out. Yeah. They used to boast 19,000 possible permutations of beverages. But do you think people, when they go in, you know, do they eliminate 18,999? Co- no, they don't. They just go give me a large coffee or, you know, I want my coffee. Americano with a yep. shot of espresso, whatever. Right. Yep. And you know what? There's not much thinking necessary for that. You know, we rely on the things we know, the things we like. And, you know, if, if it turns out that we don't like it, so be it, you know, it might've been just a bad cup of coffee. It might've just, who knows what it was, but it's not going to affect us to such an extent where we have to kind of curse ourselves for not having given it more thought. Same thing kind of goes for, you know, a lot of the silly decisions that we make in, in the morning, you know, thinking about what you do in the morning from the moment you wake up to the, the moment you, you get into work, you know, what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat for breakfast? Uh, what route should I take to work? All these little things, they don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. And so we don't think about them very much. You know, our brain is, is fantastic. You know, it's evolutionarily adapted in such a way that we don't have to think about these things that, you know, they are snap second decisions. And we have this automaticity to our thinking. We have this, as a lot of people would say, an intuitive decision-making scheme, I guess. 
And so intuition is very helpful for those kind of decisions that don't matter. But when we are faced with a decision that matters, and this, it is all contextual, different things matter to different people. And so it is subjective in that sense. But if you care about something and it deserves your critical thinking, you know, that's when you turn off the intuition. And that's when you turn on the opposite of that. That's that reflection, that reflective judgment. So yeah, it's about caring. That word is important, caring, because you know it, it reflects this idea of importance or whatever. But the problem with the word like caring is that it's very well associated with this kind of concept of emotion. You know, and, mm-hmm. and many psychologists will know what, where I'm going with this. If you're making a decision and it's full of your emotion and you know it's emotion has great influence on it's not necessarily going to be a bad decision it's more likely to be a bad decision because you know emotion has a tendency to make our thinking irrational right i often give people tips you know one of my first tips i give them is keep emotion at the door you know forget about that be as objective as possible it doesn't matter if you sound cold in your head or maybe even to other people you know the colder the better because that means it is void of emotion and that's where you're more likely to more likely to come up with a, a better solution quite frankly so that's the tough thing when i say we have to care about our the topics we think about yeah that's we do but we also have to forget about how much we care about them we have to remove that passion it's good to be concerned but it's important to take out the passion sure nice way of putting it <laughs> yeah so i know this area of critical thinking is huge and we could go in a million different directions with it. So I picked out some areas of your blog posting that I thought might be particularly interesting and helpful to introduce this topic to listeners who aren't so familiar with it. And one thing you talk about is this concept of cognitive biases. And you mm-hmm. list a, you list a bunch. I'm sure there's a ton of different cognitive biases that have labels that researchers and theor- uh, theorists have talked about. But you, you listed several of them, and I think that maybe we could spend a little time and you explain to us how these relate to critical thinking and how we could know whether or not these are occurring when we're using them. So I'm wondering of them that you talk about. The first one is this idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Tell us a little bit about that and how does that impact critical thinking? Yeah, so the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is, um, it's a funny one. In a simple way, it's, it's this kind of idea where people often overestimate the amount that they know about a topic that they shouldn't really actually know very much about. At the same rate, when people actually know quite a bit about what they're talking about, they actually kind of underestimate how much they know. So it's like being unnecessarily humble when you're actually an authority on this kind of thing. And, you know, I think when we look, academics look at themselves, I think it ties in quite nicely with, you know, what a lot lot of academics talk about when they talk about imposter syndrome. Right. Yes. The more they know, the more uh, dubious they become about how much do I actually know. And so it comes back to this idea of reflective judgment again and kind of the Socratic uh, uh, reasoning. It's like, all I know is that I don't know. And that's kind of how it, how it ties in. What is the basis of our knowing? How do we know we know this kind of thing? Yeah. And where do you think that stems from? I mean, it seems sort of counterintuitive why a person with a lack of knowledge would overestimate their knowledge and a person who has so much knowledge in a topic would underestimate. I think when people are novice in a topic area, I think it actually does become kind of natural for them to do this. This is how I see it. You know, I'm not saying that this is actually the the case, you know, again, Mm -hmm. I'm exercising this idea of reflective judgment, you know, 
the way I kind of see it is, right, if we think about the way in which we construct understanding, we get a piece of information and we store it and it goes into long-term memory. The way it goes in is the way it's understood. And so when we say we understand something, we don't necessarily mean that we understand it correctly. Mm -hmm. We understand it the way it went in. But let's say for the sake of argument, we did understand it correctly. And let's say we got another piece of information and we understood that correctly. Now we know they're related in some way and we make that relationship. And then we get another piece of information and we know that third piece is some way linked to those other two pieces, but we're not entirely sure how, what happens. Well, human beings do not like being confused. When human beings don't understand something, you know, they, they fear it and whatever. Yeah, people like to feel like they're making sense of the world around them. Exactly, exactly. For a social psychologist, we talk about schemas and we're making a framework of understanding the world. Absolutely. What happens is we've got these three pieces of information, but this one last piece just doesn't seem to fit. So what we do is we fill in the gap. We tell ourselves a little story that may or may not be true that fits it in. And there's a lot of theorists out there. There's a lot of research out there that kind of suggests that you know, human beings think in, in a storytelling way. We almost form a narrative structure. And it's a desirable way to look at it because it's a nice, easy way to look at it as well. And that's what we like. We ni- like nice, neat little packages. It, it reminds me of, I don't know, did you ever watch Scrubs that was on that show years ago? Yeah, I never saw that, but tell, tell us the analogy. Okay, so Sc- Scrubs was this kind of uh, parody of, of like ER and, and Grey's Anatomy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was a medical drama, but a comedy, but it was, I guess it was a dramedy because there was dramatic elements, but uh, at the end of every episode, the main character would kind of give a little narration at the end and tie everything up into a nice, neat little package. So as as if real life can be done that way, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a 22 minute episode and he summarizes it in a line or two. Well, that's kind of like what people really are like. We'd like nice, neat little packages to make sense. And unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. You know, the world is confusing and and weird things happen. And, you know, there's plenty of phenomena out there that will kind of lend itself to explaining things like that. But the point is, is that when we are confused, we will add, throw in information there to kind of tie up loose ends. And so if we do that, and then we've explained something very complex to ourselves by tying up a lot of loose ends, by filling in the gaps with things that may or may not be accurate, we may feel that, you know, we know a lot more than we think we do know. Like, <laughs> I know for fun, I took a course in quantum mechanics. It was very interesting. It was very confusing. It was very tough. Did I do very well? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> it, w- it was for fun and, you know, things get in the way, real life gets in the way. Sure. And, you know, I did okay enough, you know, like I didn't fail it miserably or anything, but it was very tough. That was about 10 years ago. Now, if I was to tell you what I do remember about it, it would probably take me about 20 minutes and I could probably write you a paragraph on what I learned. But there was a lot more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Now, if someone was to read this little paragraph that I wrote and, you know, it's like, this is what quantum mechanics is to Chris Dwyer or whatever. And if my argument is compelling enough, someone might read that and go, wow, he's just simplified everything for me. I understand now. And then they'll go on the internet maybe half an hour after that with the conspiracy theory about quantum mechanics, because (laughs) I have simplified something. So, you know, and I'm not saying that that's it. I'm just saying, this is how I simplified it for myself to kind of remember things. And 
and and that's what we do. We simplify right. things. Yeah. So another one of the cognitive biases that you mention is confirmation bias. Tell us about that. So the confirmation bias is it's getting the information you want to get. People will say A is true and someone else will say B is true. And it doesn't matter how many people will agree with person A, person B goes, no, no, it's still right. Mm -hmm. And so they'll go on Google and they won't stop looking for the information until they find the information that supports them, even though it lacks credibility, it's from a dodgy website, all this and that. And then they present that. And then they're like, well, you know, this is not credible. It's problematic everywhere. It lacks logic. It, whatever. It says it here. Can't be wrong. So, so maybe, maybe the confirmation bias, the best way to think of that might be in the context of like a conspiracy theory where somebody has a belief about something and they're looking for information that would just confirm that belief, regardless of where the source comes from. Yeah, definitely. Um, conspiracy theories are, are kind of one of the better examples because, you know, it's such a hot topic right now. But yeah, it's, it's a lot to do with finding the answer that you want kind of thing. So this idea that, you know, maybe the earth, the earth is flat or something, you know, obviously <laughs> you're going to find a lot of sites kind of automatically on Google that says, no, you're wrong. This is ridiculous kind of thing. And people will keep searching and it doesn't matter credibility wise what they're looking for. What they're looking for is, you know, if they're already convinced, they're just looking for further support. What I'd always find interesting is, is the people who, when they start believing in it, when does that moment come like, wow, I've been duped all my life? And it's nothing to do with credibility. You're never going to find anyone credible making the argument that the earth is flat kind of thing. So then it becomes an issue of, you know, why are they believing this? So then do you, you say to yourself, well, surely logic should help these people, you know, realize that it's not the case. But then you might say to yourself, well, maybe logic may not be their forte kind of thing. So like a lot of the research, you know, and I'm not saying anything about anyone. I'm just saying what the research says is that you'll find lower cognitive ability is significantly correlated with belief in conspiracy theory. And then when you have a belief in one conspiracy theory, there's an enhanced likelihood that you also believe in another one. So, you know, there's also this knock-on effect that we, we have to think about. But I always find it interesting, that kind of aha moment for them, mm -hmm. uh, where, where they kind of go for that. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the self-serving bias. That sounds like it may be similar to confirmation bias in some ways. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, I think the self-serving bias is similar to pretty much every bias. We have this innate self-preservation and we have an innate way to look at the world in relation to ourselves. We're always going to be the focal point of, of our worlds. And, you know, Again, that's an evolutionary kind of thing as well. And it's a developmental thing on top of that. You know, when we look at our, ourselves when we're toddlers and, and, and we grow up, you know, we think we are the be all and end all. Yeah, we have caregivers. Yeah, we might have people we interact with, but I'm the most important person and that's all that matters. And then as you grow older, you realize that other people have, you know, they think and feel just like you do. And, you know, we have to kind of consider them when we're making decisions. How is this going to have, so it, it all becomes this way, but, you know, we, we will always have that kind of basic instinct to, to look after ourselves and look after our mm -hmm. own and, and self-serve essentially. But a self-serving bias is simply just making a decision that 
suits us um, mm-hmm. suits us best. Right. So if we're making decisions that end up causing us problems or stress or whatever, that's not going to work well for us a lot of the time. So if we have a number of different options of which bias to choose, we're more likely to choose ones that are going to serve our interests rather than work against us. Exactly. And I mean, it doesn't even have to be in a, in a practical sense, you know, where it's like I'm choosing something, even though it may, quote unquote, seem greedy. I'm, you know, that's a very, very practical, hands on sure. way of looking at it. You know, we can look at it, you know, in a more psychological way. One of my favorite examples of it is, is, is the student, you know, in class and and they get a poor grade on an exam. The self-serving bias would be like, oh, well, my teacher hates me or he's a terrible teacher. And, you know, we should get him fired because, you know, I shouldn't be failing this, where the reality might be, well, you didn't study enough. You shouldn't have gone partying Mm. all week. You shouldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, you know, but people don't like to say to themselves, well, maybe it was me. And, and so, you know, we rationalize our decisions. We rationalize the way we choose to view the world. It's always going to be painted in some, some type of emotion. And again, we have, we can't forget the link between emotion and bias here. We do have that tendency to just color things in in our favor. Sure. Yeah. The self-serving bias is much like that. Yeah. I think that's really important because oftentimes in therapy, we're looking at people externalizing and blaming everything else and everybody else for what's going on around them and being able to look inward and say, Hey, maybe I'm doing something wrong here. There's something that's not really working the way that I'm approaching things that would be helpful. And that's often really tough for people to do, but I think that's part of what you're talking about then. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you also talk about the optimism, pessimism bias. What's this about? It's, it's a lot to do with emotion. Quite simply, if we're in a good mood, we're more likely to perceive things or kind of predict things in, in a positive light, in a positive outcome. Likewise, you know, if we're in a bad mood, we're more likely to see things in a negative light, you know, maybe a more pessimistic outlook on things. It's essentially mirroring your mirroring your mood. So again, the importance of emotion kind of taking over the, the decision-making. I think that's like in a clinical practice, we often try to advise people not to make important decisions when they're really, really depressed or having a bad day. Oftentimes people will just be in a very bad mood and, and they have a knee-jerk reaction to want to make a big decision. And that's usually not a great way to make decision-making for them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's an interesting thing, I think, because they are two separate poles altogether because, you know, we don't want to be a negative person. We don't want to put things in a negative slant. We also want to say like, you know, we should be optimistic and we should look at things in a positive light. But when it comes to critical thinking, that's almost as bad because you're equally as likely any extreme emotion is going to distort decision-making in terms of being overly optimistic or being in too good of a mood. We're actually more inclined to make risky decisions because again, we're optimistic about what's going to the outcome. You know, there's actually some research from a good while back where people went into uh, in for job interviews and the people who were in lower mood or had a negative outlook on things were actually much more accurate in terms of predicting the outcome or predicting their performance level consistent with the interview panel. So just as much as being in a negative mood can be problematic, so too can being overly optimistic. Yeah. So I think the main point here is obviously there's nothing wrong with being an optimistic person. And sometimes being pessimistic is not necessarily like a bad thing, but for the purpose of critical thinking, if we want to make more accurate 
decisions with the information we have available to us, being optimistic or pessimistic may bias the decision. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about this sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. Does that sound, that sounds like a gambling thing. I don't know. It, it is. You're, you're dead right on that. It's this idea that human beings hate losing. Okay. Hmm. We, we absolutely hate losing. There's a, a, a Nobel Prize winning uh, psychologist, Daniel Kahneman. I think he won the Nobel Prize for economics. One of his findings in, in his research was that people love being right. You know, people yeah. love being right, but they hate being wrong even more. So this is kind of where this thinking of, you know, aversion to losing. When we have like a, this kind of sunk cost fallacy, right? It's like the idea of chasing the pot in, in poker, right? And we're playing poker and, you know, we're down whatever, you know, <laughs> you know, let's say $500 is a lot of money, right? And that's in the pot and you're down. And I can't believe, I've, you know, I'm down 500. What would you do? What would you do? You know, and it's like you ask different people, what would you do? Would you mm-hmm. keep playing? And, you know, a lot of people would say, no, I'm going to chase that. But at the end of the day, that money is lost. That money is off the table, as they say in poker, you know. And so just throwing more money at something, knowing the statistical likelihoods of winning based on when you started, based on now and trying to win back five, it's wrong to do. You know, you should not be chasing the pot. But when we kind of apply that to other ideas in life, we start seeing like problems. So like, say, for instance, you've got someone who is in a job their whole life. And they're constantly waiting for that promotion, constantly waiting. And they've been doing that job for 20 years and they're sure it's coming. They're sure it's coming, but they deserved it. Let's say they deserved it 15 years ago. You know, they've been doing the job 20 and they're at it for 15. Well, you know, how long are they going to keep at it? And then they realized one day that they're 50 years old and they're never going to get it and they're never going to move on. They're never, you know, what do I do? Well, you could go into another career, but that sounds like I'm going to lose 20 years of my life. Why would I, you know, I've put all this time and effort in. And that's a problem that a lot of people deal with, you know, and, or similar, similar situations. But that's essentially a sunk cost fallacy. If all indicators are there that your time is done or, you know, and I don't mean that in, in a cold way, but again, we have to look at it objectively. You know, we have to say to ourselves, I wonder what my peers think. I wonder what my family thinks. I wonder, you know, can I get an outside perspective on this? Because, you know, we are so we're in the middle of it, you know, and here we are driven by emotion. We're not going to make this decision accurately. Yeah, it, it sounds to me sort of like the idea that if I've put so much time, effort, money or whatever into this thing and it hasn't gone my way, I'm so invested in it that it's got to pay off sooner or later if I just stick with it. But of course, mm-hmm. just because you've put in so much time and energy or money into something doesn't mean that it's any more likely to pay off later. Does that sort of summarize it? Yeah. Like, I mean, where the negativity thing is, where what we're doing is we're outweighing, we're overweighing, shall I say, the potential for the negative. Like, you know, I have to go relearn. I have to reskill. I have to do all that. We outweigh the problem, the negativity there than the positive, where like, if I went into a new career tomorrow, you know, if I put the foot down and really went for it, the world is my oyster. We never think about it that way. We think about everything that we've lost. Got it. Yes. Tell me about the decline bias known as declinism. What is that about? Yeah. So if you want to think of a, um, some kind of family gathering and, you know, you have a wise old uncle or, or something like that, or maybe not even a wise old, just an <laughs> old uncle. And they go, oh, well, you know what? 
back in my day and you know they tell you how how they did it and how they had it and even if it was too tough it was still better i walked to school 12 miles every day uphill both ways you know and 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 i that's <laughs> how i got character <laughs> <laughs> you know i developed a good work ethic because of that and you know all these wonderful character building things and they say you know kids these days they have it too easy they have this they have that whatever and the way things change but again People don't like change. Why don't people like change? Well, change means something new is coming along. It means something is foreign is coming along. It means that things are not going to stay the same. Things don't stay the same. It gets confusing, but people don't like being confused. We like to know things. We like to have that narrative. We you know, want things to remain as they are, nice, neat little packages. And here it is, you know, declinism is essentially saying, things were better back then because I understood things better back then. They made more sense to me. And um, I'm less afraid of them in an implicit kind of way. But I think we all do that. You know, here I am, I'm talking about these biases. And just because, you know, you're a good critical thinker about one of these or, you know, about some topic doesn't mean you're going to be, you're going to think critically appropriately in every topic. It's not likely to happen. We're always going to fall prey to poor thinking. So like each one of these biases, you know, I think I've probably fallen prey to them, you know, at least once each sure. in the past two weeks, you know, yeah. um, but yeah, declinism is, an, is another one where, you know, we hear something new and it's just like, this is coming out and I'm like, oh, that can't be good. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if it's kind of like every, this may be oversimplifying, but every generation sort of complains that the generation, the newer generation is falling apart. You know, like we're saying like, oh, these millennials, this, these millennials, that, and then the mm. millennials are talking about whenever the new generation is called, I can't keep them all. Yeah. But that somehow or another, like their generation has got it right and things are falling apart. But of course, if every generation is doing this, then we should be descending into anarchy and complete disaster. But there's, I don't think there's any objective way of saying one generation was any better than this, than the next generation. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it has a lot to do with the naming of things, you know, like I always find it funny because there was the golden generation, you know? And so, (laughs) you know, just the way it's labeled is just like, okay, obviously these, this is supposed to be the greatest ever. And it's funny how things do actually change, you know? Millennials get, you know, they get a hard time, you know, stereotypically, shall we say, they have things that are going in their favor, but they have things that are going against them. But I remember what they used to say about Gen X, you know, Generation X was just a bunch of people who just didn't care, the latchkey kids that they had no future in this and that. And here we have a lot of Gen Xers, you know, they started caring, you know, and they're doing okay or whatever. And it's the Gen Xers then uh, that might be giving out about the millennials. And it'll probably be the millennials who give out about, I guess, the Gen Zers after that. And that's going to just keep happening. You know, it's, you know, I always looked at, you know, my mother and father and my grandparents and thinking, wow, it was so crazy with the, the stuff that they used to have to deal with and put up with. And then you hear stories now about like a little girl or a little boy and they see an actual floppy disk, you know, and then they go, why do you have the save button printed out? Like, you know, it's like, wow. Yeah. They would have never seen that or, yeah, you know, rotary telephone or cassette tapes, things like that. So we're not necessarily as up to date as we all like to think. We're not as all hip as we'd like to think, you know, and, and every generation is going to you know probably think about it likewise, you know? Sure. Tell us about the backfire effect. Yeah, so the backfire effect, it's an interesting one, okay? Because it's so contradictory to everything we think of as common sense. If you want to teach someone something, 
what do you do? Well, you transfer knowledge to them. And so like the cognitive psychologist in me will always think of this kind of black box analogy, right? That, you know, if you want knowledge to happen, it's, you know, think of the mind as a black box. We throw information into the box and you shake the box around a little bit and then something falls out, boom, that's, that's your knowledge, right? It's this kind of transfer. But what happens when you put knowledge in or put, you, you put information in and you shake it back up and instead of, you know, releasing it as knowledge, it says, nope, you're wrong. Actually, mm-hmm. you're so wrong that I actually think the wrong thing even more now. It's just one of these crazy things where you actually try to teach someone something and you've actually taught them the complete opposite uh, mm-hmm. because they are so resistant. And I guess that's the great way or the easiest way of, of describing it is like reinforcing this re- resistance. Uh, and that's what the backfire effect is. Essentially, you're trying to debunk someone's incorrect information. The more I try to convince you that you're wrong or present information to you that you're wrong, the harder you dig your heels in and resist changing your opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's the backfire effect. Now, why is that? I think it's human psychology. I think there's so many different factors in there. So if we go back to this idea of, you know, what I was talking about with Daniel Kahneman in terms of, you know, people don't like being wrong. If you told me I was wrong, I'd be like, you know, I could be like, oh, you know what? He's right. He's right. But I'm going to argue it anyway, because <laughs> I don't want to look weak. And there are a lot of people who, who would do that. They know they've been caught out, but they figure I'm really good at arguing. So I'll argue around it until maybe they give up or something. Mm. So I think there is an element of saving face. I think there's an element of being so disgusted by what they're being told that they just, you know, kind of dig their heels in and go, this is not the world I'm living in. So they kind of latches onto the declinism. And then, you know, you've got this other thing, this really nasty thing that we call a belief. And everyone has beliefs. And, and I'm not, I'm not talking about religion or anything like that. I'm think I'm saying we have information in our heads that is there for no other reason than it's there. Okay, it's never been verified as fact, but it has been taught to us or it's something we've observed. It's a decision that we've made. Yes, this is a fact, but the reality of it is there's absolutely no evidence there to establish it as such, but it's there anyway. And so let's say we've held a belief for, you know, like I said, I'm 36 years old. Let's say I've believed something since I've been 15 and I've never seen anything otherwise to disprove me. Well, you know what? I'll probably hold on to that belief for quite a long time. And if someone does come up to me with evidence, I'll probably be resistant to that. And I'll be resistant to that because if I'm wrong about my belief, if my belief is wrong, then I might have to start questioning all my beliefs. Mm, And if I mm -hmm. have to question all my beliefs, then what's happened to my worldview? Right. Right. And, And that scares me. And again, you know, we don't like being scared. We don't like being confused. So yeah, it actually reinforces us. You know, we want to reinforce this idea of strength in our beliefs and our ideas. And so, you know, maybe that's where the backfire comes from. I think it's similar to this other belief, this other effect you talk about called the Forer effect or the Barnum effect, having to do with holding on to information that applies to us and discarding that that doesn't. It sounds like it's sort of related yeah, it's it's very much related. Yeah. And even with the self-serving bias kind of thing, you know, things that, you know, make us feel good. So, yeah, the Barnum effect, it's kind of like um, 
if you're ever on Facebook or, you know, one of these things and you kind of take one of those quizzes and it's like, find out what, um, whatever you are. And, you know, it, it doesn't even matter what well, we make up a term and it's like, oh, I don't know. That's, that would actually be probably a really good idea for an app. We could just make up a bunch of words and people like, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to know, know what I am, you know? And then it's like, oh, you're a loving kind blank. You know, we'll go back to kind of behavior speaking. We'll call them a zug. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. anything Z, it's D-U-G. I don't think that exists, right? So you're a zug. You're a kind, loving zug. Oh, well, fantastic. And you find all these kind of attributes that are really attractive to you, that you're kind and you're loving and whatever. And people are like, yeah, yeah, they, this has really got me down to a T. And, you know, of course, this is a hypothetical situation, right? But if we start looking at things like astrology and, you know, kind of fortune telling and all this kind of stuff, you start looking at that and we're essentially being told what we want to hear in some cases, or, you know, in, in other cases, it's just so vague and generic that it's actually applicable to everyone. And that works because we're kind of self-centered. So instead of saying, oh, that could be anyone. No, no, that that's to me. It's speaking yeah. directly to me. Yeah. So yeah. I, that's me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and we hear that, we hear that all the time. And, you know, I, I always think about like kind of these parodies of, you know, kind of fans of bands or singers. Right. And it's like, they write to them as part of the fan club. I don't know if they still have fan clubs or whatever, but <laughs> maybe yeah. they have, you know, their, their threads and stuff on, on Instagram or whatever. I remember this kind of parody was just like, your music speaks directly to me. And, and it's like, it's almost that I'm in a private concert and, you know, the band or the singer is probably like, oh, wow, you know, I hope you never show up to my show. Like, it's kind of <laughs> weird, you know, assuming yeah. they read their fan mail, you know, uh, but it is kind of like that. It's this kind of self-focused uh, uh, way of looking at things again. Yeah. Right. Let's talk briefly about the fundamental attribution error. This one, I'd say we're, we're more likely to fall for on a day-to-day basis. And it's, it's when we make a really quick evaluation of a situation, a social situation, and we rely on very, very basic, stereotypical ways of looking at things, schema-based way of looking at things, and essentially make a cause and effect way of looking at things, you know, that it's a very simple if A, then B process. And it works out different for everyone because it plays on everyone's schemas, their, their own schemas and their own stereotypes and the way they believe things. The old textbook way of, of looking at it, you can say, wow, you know, in, in this day and age, I can't believe that's in a textbook anymore. But to be honest with you, that's kind of the importance of looking at the fundamental attribution error is that it kind of digs its heels in with those kind of harmful stereotypes. So uh, the textbook example is, you know, you're driving your car and you're behind a driver and the driver starts swerving and they've put their indicator on late for one turn and then failed to do it the next time. And they're still swerving and someone else has honked them and you say, oh, wow, this is a really crappy driver. And so you've decided, you know, you've, you have an opportunity to overtake them or you're actually going to make a right turn when they're making a, a left turn and you pull up next to them. And you say to yourself, oh, it's a woman, typical. So, of course, he, you know, you say to yourself, right, well, wow, that's a, a stereotype right there. Yeah. But, you know, we all do it. Men, women, it doesn't matter. We work on stereotypes when we make these kind of decisions with very little information. So, again, because we have little information, we're filling in the gaps to make sense of it. What we fail to say to ourselves is, you know, Okay, it might be a female driver, but what we may fail to account for is, you know, why is she driving like that? Maybe she had a really bad day at work. 
you know, um, what we fail to acknowledge is there might be three kids in the backseat who were all yelling at each other, who, you know, one is trying to get to piano recital and the other one is trying to go to baseball practice. And you just don't know. You don't know that person's life, just like you would have a bad day. So what it is, we're taking a very small snapshot of, of time and making a decision in light of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think we do a lot of this in our clinical work, especially when people are making attributions about their failures or things that are going wrong in their life to things about them when there are many, many other things that could be contributing to the problems they're having, you know, rather than attributing like, I failed this test, it's because I suck as a student or Mm -hmm. I'm a, a total loser or failure. There's no way that I could do this work they're not looking at the fact that they're working a full-time job. They've got personal issues in their relationship. They didn't have time to study for this particular test. And I think that's what you're saying is that it's easy to attribute something to one particular thing when there could be multiple factors that you're not taking into consideration. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we've been talking about it in a, in a lot of ways that, you know, are kind of self-serving. And when I say self-serving, we've been kind of putting it in a positive light to make one look better. But we can also do that in the kind of example that you know, you're know you making there saying, you know, if we're looking for, if we're purposefully looking for reasons why we've screwed things up, we can rationalize it that way because it serves our purpose that, yeah. you know, I'm a loser and, and that's it. So it doesn't necessarily, you know, because it's self-serving doesn't necessarily mean it's in a positive light. Right, right. Well, great. These are super helpful. And I hope that people can listen and hear some of these different kinds of cognitive biases as they apply it to their own lives and their own thinking and the way that they're evaluating things. Like you said, it's not necessary to be a critical thinker in every single thing that's happening all the time in your life. But when it comes to important things, things that you care about, things that have to do with you as a person or the world around you or belief systems that you have that's maybe coming in conflict with other people, that perhaps that's the time to take a look back and say, how am I using the information that I have to make these decisions about the world around me? Chris, is there any last words that you'd like to say about this topic? Yeah, um, I think it's one of those things that we have to you know, value. And I think it's one of those things that if you've ever been kind of questioning of your own critical thinking uh, or your own thinking, uh, good. That means you're, you're on the right track if you are questioning. If you think you know it all, and if you think you know you don't have any problems with critical thinking, well, I think you're probably a prime candidate for someone who needs to kind of consider it a little bit more. Um, kind of consistent with this Dunning-Kruger effect that we were we were discussing before. Yeah. But in terms of a tip, you know, always play devil's advocate. Whenever you make a decision and you're sure of it, you know, ask yourself, well, are there any alternatives, and why am I not choosing the alternative? And that might help simplify a lot of your decision-making or even some of your maybe uncertainty. If, if you're really stuck and you're, you're unsure of yourself, you can rest assured that if you've gone through the alternatives and you've eliminated them, then you probably are going to be making the best decision that you could possibly make at, at that stage. So with that, you know, keep, keep emotion out of it and, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're making good advances. Awesome. I think that's great advice. And thank you so much for that. Chris, it's been a really interesting conversation. And thanks so much for talking with us today about critical thinking. And you have really interesting work that you're doing over there. So keep it up. Thanks a million, Aaron. I really appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.